also a tin teardrop. But I'm doing well, well. I run on laser beams. <laughs> Star Hello, and welcome to Track by Track presents Trout Mask Replica. My name is Joel Bacher, guest hosting for Darren Husted, as we go track by track through Captain Beefheart and his Magic Band's epic 1969 double album, Trout Mask Replica. Today we are discussing Fallen Ditch, which is track 18. It is on side three of Trout Mask Replica, and I normally write down which track it is on side three, but I failed to do that today. So it's on side three, you'll find it there somewhere. Uh, it was recorded in Whitney Studios in Glendale, California, March of 1969, produced by Frank Zappa. Personnel is uh, Bill Harkelroad, a.k.a. Zoothorn Rollo, on guitar. Jeff Cotton, a.k.a. Antenna Jimmy Siemens, on guitar. Mark Boston, a.k.a. Rocket Morton, on bass and Laser Beans on this particular track. Uh, John French, a.k.a. Drumbo, on drums. And Don Van Vliet, a.k.a. Captain Beefheart, on vocals. Length of the track is two minutes and eight seconds. Uh, my guest today is the composer, uh, podcaster, YouTuber, and a uh, person who has done an enormous amount for contemporary study and appreciation of Captain Beefheart and the Magic Band, Samuel Andreev. Mr. Andreev, thank you again for being on the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. When I initially contacted guests for the show and gave them the the opportunity to, to select a couple of tracks to talk about, uh, the ones that Mr. Andreev was interested in were Pachuco Cadaver, which we have already recorded and you likely already heard and this track fallen ditch uh and i was curious what it was about both of those tracks but since we're talking fallen ditch today what it was about fallen ditch that attracted your attention well it's short and sweet it's a kind of microcosm of the album um but it's also catchy and that's not something that you necessarily associate with trap mask replica spontaneously uh but it's got this um it's got this beautiful little bass line that, that comes in about halfway through the track that uh, actually resurfaced later on, I think on Unconditionally Guaranteed of all places. Um, so really? Beefheart himself. Yeah, yeah. It, it comes up. I'm trying to remember the track. Yeah, no, it's on It's on Unconditionally Guaranteed. Um, I'll have uh, to look that up and see see where it's... Because I know that... Um, that uh, French and Harkelroad in their books are very good about pointing out like this melody got used again here, or this song is, you know, this has the same riff as this, but we play it backwards or something like that. So uh, right. I'll have to track that down that it is a, a fantastic um, catchy, groovy bass part that does kick in about maybe uh, yeah, a minute and 10 seconds into the song or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 really actually quite surprising when it does come in. You're not expecting it. How's that full of spirit? How's that full of things? It ain't my fault the things gone wrong. The first half of the track is you know, is is not exactly what you would call catchy. <laughs> so it's that sudden shift from something that is fairly abstract if i can use that term uh just to, to something that suddenly out of nowhere just sort of focuses on this uh it, it sort of coheres it sort of comes together uh and uh and you're you're suddenly focusing on this uh, very catchy little riff which is something that also happens on on uh, pachuco pachuco cadaver incidentally that's true they both uh settle from um somewhat more chaotic sounding beginnings into what on this album it constitutes like a groove or kind of you know a beat that you can actually i don't know about dance to it would be probably challenging to dance to this song but it it does um it does settle into a riff that you can actually settle down in for for a minute which is for this album to settle down at all for anything longer than 20 or 30 seconds is is remarkable yeah yeah absolutely um, so I, I like very much this track partly because it, you know, it says what it has to say in sort of the shortest amount of time possible. And then when it's done, it, it just stops, <laughs> you know, there's nothing extra. 
there's very little repetition in the track also, which means that most of most of the riffs and uh, most of the things that uh, that happen in the in the guitar and bass parts you hear once or twice, and then it moves on to something else. So there's it, it's short, but there's quite a lot happening in it. Yeah, it it follows the um, the stru- the traditional structure of Trout Mask Replica in not really having a traditional structure that it it moves from one section to another section to another section without repeats or without anything approximating the traditional verse chorus verse uh, rock song format. This this is one of the only albums that is classified as rock music that I can think of where when a song does have verse chorus format, it's unusual enough that you notice it. Like right. when a, when there's a repetition on this album, it, it's it's almost like oh hey they're playing a part again. That uh, it's unusual enough that it actually does attract your attention rather than the other way around. That's right, yeah. And there's a bit of that in the lyrics. I mean, to the extent that there is a recognizable structure, you you see it in the in the lyrics to some extent. I mean, the the, the line "Who's afraid of the fallen ditch," uh, which does recur, and that's an interesting line in and of itself because it, it's sort of "Who's afraid of the big bad wolf?" I mean, it it, it seems to stem from uh, that sort of nursery rhyme uh, sort of world. Um, but uh, I'm very fond of this track. And the the lyrics are also kind of interesting. It's, it's there, you know, as, as is often the case on this album, they're somewhat ambiguous, but mostly what he's talking about on this track is relatively straightforward. You know, a fallen ditch is a kind of metaphor for getting into trouble, it seems, um, either of your own making or, you know, the trouble resulting from someone's malice, someone who has it out for you. Uh, and he talks about overcoming that and, uh, you know, managing to, uh, persevere in the face of adversity. I think that's basically what the track is about. Yeah. The, um, which the, you know, the traps that others have laid out for him does, does fit in a bit with, with Van Vliet's famously somewhat paranoid, um, temperament. Uh, I know Mike Barnes in, in his book, um, and uh, Kevin Corrier and his both both presume the fallen ditch to refer to the grave. That uh, Barnes says it falls somewhere between Robert Pete Williams's almost dead blues and Dylan Thomas's do not go gentle into that good night. But the the ditch, like you say, it's it's not necessarily a grave. It's um, I mean he has the line somebody want to throw the dirt right down, but that doesn't necessarily refer to a literal burying. It can refer to Okay, they've tripped me up, and now they're trying to hold me down. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna break through. Who's afraid of the spirit with the blues for bones? Which is one of my favorite lines on the entire album. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you said, there's the, you know, the who's afraid of the big bad wolf that that ties in with the the love of um, some kind of uh, childish iconography that that pops up frequently on this album. The the use of um, you know musical motif from Mama's Little Baby Love Short and Bread or or, or things like that, like Im- images and sounds from from presumably Van Vliet's childhood that he's repurposing into these songs. Well, one of the things I like about his approach to writing poetry is that, uh, as you say, it's there's something childlike and, and very direct about it. The vocabulary is usually pretty simple. He doesn't use a lot of um, esoteric or, or polysyllabic words. Uh, the images are are sort of very sharp and and strong. Um, and so you you know you see these very simple evocative words come out in the in the words again and again, <clears throat> and I find that very appealing uh, because he he's managed he manages to create a very strong feeling of atmosphere, but with very simple means for the most part. And actually, there's a there's an Austrian poet that um, called Georg Trakl T R A K L, who did something similar. I mean, his work is a lot more probably on the nightmarish side than, than this is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a sort of a, a Austrian expressionist poetry and it's very dark and very, very disorienting, but he also used these very, very simple, uh, very simple words, very restricted uh, vocabulary and a lot of symbolic language. So, I mean, everything that, um, that I read from Don Van Vliet indicates that he was, you know, a pretty sophisticated poet. I'm sure. And, uh, and we probably talked about this last time, but I'm sure he was very familiar with all the beat poets, for instance, and, and probably mm-hmm. many other things besides. Yeah, and and like you say, he's there's not much in terms of um, you know uh, 
big $20 words in, in the, the language that he uses in his, in his poetry and his song lyrics, he does occasionally coin neologisms, or at least terms that I'm not familiar with, like the, the use of the word form a heap on, mm-hmm. on Bill's corpse. I, I've always wondered if that's like some kind of odd bit of personal slang or in joke, or if anybody's listening to this and actually knows what a form a heap is, get in touch with me. Cause I've, I've never been clear on that. I've always Nobody interpreted it to mean kind of junky. Yeah. Because it pops up again on odd jobs on that chain puller. Here he comes on his form a heap bike. So I, oh, yeah. I always kind of thought it was like junk, basically, just like a big, right. a big pile of garbage. Um, but but the use of that very like simple um, language leads to these these very uh, vibrant and kind of. I don't know Americana esque images that that pop up in his songs, like the red enamel rolling pin from um, Mama Flatten and Lard with the red enamel rolling pin from Old Fart at Play, mm-hmm. uh, which you know there, there's almost like a a touch of uh, William Carlos Williams kind of kind of imagery in that, like this very domestic American, um, so, you know, somewhat rural iconography. Absolutely, yeah, and a lot of references to colors and, and primary colors in particular uh, resurface throughout the the lyrics. Colors and animals. Animals yeah. are are a constant source of of imagery on this. In in Goodis's article, he has this fantastic breakdown of every animal that's referenced on this album, which is um, quite quite the menagerie. I was going to say there's 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 work to be done here for somebody for a literary critic, for example, or or. Um, you know, someone who's who's really well versed in poetry to have a look at these uh, these these lyrics and analyze them a little bit more closely. I haven't really done that work, uh, and I'm not the best placed person to do that. But uh, but I think it's worth taking seriously as poetry. And I, I also find that something that is relatively unique to this album is that the 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 words actually work quite well independently of the music. In other words, uh, you mm-hmm. can read them to yourself you can read them out loud you could you could you know you read them on the printed page and they still work uh, which is often not the case with rock lyrics i mean you you do actually very frequently not the case <laughs> very frequently not the case yeah there's very very little of it you know if you if you, if you were to take uh, just to give a random example the, the the jim morrison's lyrics from the doors i mean if you were to read them as poetry it would be, it would be ridiculous i mean they're they're terrible <laughs> they're, but they're but in the context of those songs they they work mm-hmm. um and in this case, though, I think uh, these were probably conceived of uh, as poetry. I mean, poetry that you would recite or sing, but still uh, as 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 poetry rather than attempting to fit into a particular genre or fit into a particular rhythmic meter. I don't think he was thinking about those things. Yeah, I think that that's that absolutely seems to be the case based on the based on the somewhat haphazard way that that lyrics were applied to the music that he did not rehearse with the band that um it didn't necessarily seem that he had uh, things planned out for how it would fit over the music as he began working on it. There's the moment on, um, I think it's, she's too much for my mirror at the end where he, you hear him say, shit, I don't know how I'm going to get that in there, which he's just run out of song for all of his lyrics, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, which, which is one, another thing that makes this song uh, stand out a bit in that, the shifts in the music do actually seem to kind of correspond with some of the shifts in his, what he's singing about and how he's singing about it, which is not always the case on this album. Sometimes it seems a bit like the, the lyric, the vocals are going on and they're not necessarily terribly well connected to the music. But as you get the different, the shifts in this song, when it, um, when it kicks into that riff uh, near the end, when he, that's a, a shift in the lyrics from, the previous uh when i get lonesome when i trip fall and ditch the that that kind of and then it's a shift into how's that for the spirit how's that for the things and he's he's shifting perspective he's shifting the way he's singing about whatever this fallen ditch is that that is presenting him with uh, an obstacle a stone in his pathway to use a another old blues line and it, it actually does seem to fit and it's uh, i've discussed with other uh guests on the show that there's the question for me is always, did he actually do maybe some editing or changing it on the fly to fit? Or is it simply one of those cases where there's always, if you do enough things against each other, there will eventually be some kind of correspondence. Like it's, it's, it, things will seem to fit together just through sheer chance. 
Yeah, I don't think this is an accident, though, in, in this case. I mean, there are there are different types of tracks on, on Trout Mask Replica, and, and putting them all in the same bag and saying, well, it was all accidental, and you just heard mm-hmm. the leakage through the through the uh, uh, the window in the in the cabin. I, I don't I don't really buy that because <clears throat> some of the tracks, it's true. I mean, there's a kind of sprechgesang uh, or sort of spoken half half singing, half 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 speech kind of thing, uh, and the, some of them are, are sort of recited very loosely, correlated with the music. But others are are clearly sung, and I mean that's the case here. And the the sort of rhythmic. Um, uh, connection between the voice part and the instruments is very clear here, and it's you know it's it's rather uh, powerful I would say. So it, it's it's by no means accidental that the voice sort of uh, coincides with what's going on musically. If, if you listen to the relationship between the voice and the bass line, particularly in the second half of the song, it uh, they they really gel like they they click together. So I I just can't you know I can't believe that he was you know just doing this completely by accident and he could barely hear the music i mean first of all it's it's in tune <laughs> like uh, yes the, the the song is basically in c major like it, it's pretty straightforward harmonically most of the time and the voice part is also in c major and i mean if he had you know barely been able to hear what the what the track sounded like when he was recording it would not be in tune it would not be together so yeah i I, I, I do somewhat question that narrative. And I, I also wonder sometimes what the rehearsals would have been like exactly. And I've heard varying, you know, stories about this from the from the players. But um it seems unlikely to me that he would have just shown up at the studio and sort of made up the voice part as he was going along. Because mm-hmm. it relates to what the instruments are doing uh, harmonically, melodically, and rhythmically. And there's also a structural relationship between the shifting instrumental parts and the shifting voice part. So, you know, I don't think that's something you could make up on the fly, even if you're, you know, tremendously gifted and all that. Um, there, there had, I mean, he had to have known what the track sounded like and he had to have had some idea of its, of its structure. Yeah. I mean, these are difficult things to, to know for certain, of course, because, of course, yeah. you know, we, we weren't present at the rehearsals, but, it's it's way more together than you know than we might be led to believe. Well, I, I was thinking about this the other day, and I, I've probably mentioned it. I, all of the shows are starting to run together to me now. So if I I already mentioned this to you, I I apologize for repeating myself. But surely he was hearing them rehearse all the time because they all lived in the same house. So even if the as the story goes he went in and he didn't really have a set plan for how the lyrics were going to go over he must have f- had a pretty solid idea of what the music sounded like because he was there i mean it no matter how quietly they tried to play and how much cardboard they put on john french's drums you're going to hear a rock band rehearsing if you're in the same house so surely he must have had that music having listened to them, you know, play it over and over again on these 16 hour days. If nothing else, he sort of, he, he must've had some sense of structure based on that. Uh, but I, I absolutely agree that that narrative of, of, you know, pure chance uh, overlay, that probably applies on some tracks, but obviously does not on others. Like, I mean, just for one, Ant-Man B starts with a call and response which is not something that would have, you know, clearly that must have, have the, that back and forth of the music must have influenced his structuring of the lyrics to be able to do that, that call and response refrain. Right. So once again, there are different sort of, what you might call structural typologies on the album uh, and that you have songs that are relatively uh, conventionally structured or that have refrains, or that have you know some kind of clear structural articulation. So songs like uh, when Big Jones sets up, for example, uh, and then other songs that seem to have almost no structural articulation, or, or it's very very difficult to figure out exactly you know how they're put together. Something like mm-hmm. Me and Meat Dream of an Octofish, um, where it just kind of just keeps going, right? And the, and the voice part doesn't relate to the music in any obvious way. And in fact, it's it's basically. There, you know, you could make a convincing case for the the connection between the voice and the and the instruments being purely accidental. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's one of the things that's very appealing about the album is is once you start listening to it closely, you start to notice that they're not all the same. Um, there is a kind of unremitting harshness to the record as a whole. It's true, uh, and there's a consistency of tone. 
but there are many, many different approaches to structuring the songs. Um, the other thing about Fallen Ditch is, you know, it is on side three of the album, which means that if you're going to listen to it, you would first have to have gotten through sides one and two, which uh, presumably not everyone managed to do when it came out. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought it would be interesting to look at one of the later tracks on the album. Uh, you know, you, you did have to have some degree of persistence to get this far. Yeah, I, I just looked it up. It's track five on side three, no less. So you've got, you've already gone through Hair Pie Bake 2, Pina, Well, and When Big Jones Sets Up just on this side before you've gotten to, to Fallen Ditch, uh, which I would say Well and When Big Jones Sets Up are both are by the standards of this album um, within the more accessible range of tracks, although the saxophone playing on When Big Jones Sets Up can be a little harsh, whereas both Pina and, and well, not so much Hair Pie Bake 2, but definitely Pina can be a little bit off-putting. Uh, on initial listen it, it's it's funny that you mentioned the the relatively consistent harshness of the tracks on this record um because i've been doing this podcast for the last couple of months i really haven't listened to much music other than captain beefheart it's been this album and other beefheart albums and anything that seems to be kind of pops into my head as as seeming like a reasonable association or some sort of link to the music and so I don't know if it's just from having listened to nothing but this for a while, but when Fallen Ditch started up, you mentioned it's mostly in C major and the, the opening guitar figure, I was like, oh, this is almost poppy. Like it, it felt like kind of um, friendly and, and, um, and tonal and uh, oh, welcoming in a way that, that um, I don't imagine it would sound that way if I played it for someone who had never heard Beefheart before. But just from just from listening to nothing but but his music for the last several months, I think my my barometer for what is harsh has totally shifted. Oh yeah, well this is this is definitely one of the more sort of cheerful, <laughs> despite the subject matter. The, you know, I know relatively, it's an interesting dichotomy there. Yeah, it, it's it's spirited, it's cheerful, it's it's you know it's it's yeah it, it's it's got a relatively light character, let's say. Um, but yeah, like the, the, the whole thing about the album being atonal, which is this sort of constant uh, cliche that you, you, you know, you hear over and over again, it's atonal music. It's a uh, atonal rock, atonal jazz or whatever people call mm-hmm. it, um, is a, is a weird myth, but I think where it comes from is the fact that there is this harshness of tone that you get in the guitars in particular, they're distorted, you know, they're right in your face mm-hmm. and, uh, they're often situated in a relatively high register also, which makes them, you know, can make them a little bit grating to listen to over a certain amount of time. Yeah. That um, treble can get a little harsh. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Bill has described the fact that they were using really crappy amplifiers, like really cheap <laughs> equipment. And so <laughs> they weren't really concerned with getting, you know, the, 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 the most fantastic tone out of their instruments. Um, and then of course, playing with the, the metal finger picks and all that kind of thing just would have uh, uh, emphasized that even more. Um, but as, as far as this track goes, you know, if you, if you look at the, uh, the sort of melodic uh, lines played by each of the instruments, you know, from a harmonic tonal point of view, it's it's really pretty straightforward. I mean, there's there's a bit of a blues scale. There's a flat seven uh, in the guitar part in the second half of the track. There's like there's nothing in those individual lines that's particularly unusual from a from a melodic standpoint. I think I think where it comes from is the is the tone, the timbre of the guitars, and also the uh, the the what would you call it the 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 rhythmic. Um, well, the polyrhythmic aspect, certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, just the incredible rhythmic flexibility. Like, so it can be difficult when you're hearing this for the first time for a lot of people to figure out where the patterns are exactly. Right. And that, that's something that, that makes rock music and pop music incredibly easy to digest is that not only are they full of patterns, but the patterns are obvious and they're patterns that you've heard 10,000 times in 10,000 other songs, right? Because there's, there's a very, very limited range of uh, rhythmic patterns that you get in most rock music Mm -hmm. um and then this really takes that and and throws it all out the window so it's not atonal but the patterns let's say are a little bit more sophisticated than what you normally get and uh and they're they're less predictable and that in combination with a certain harshness in the in the in the tone of the instruments i think 
makes people think that it's it's atonal. Like, atonal is associated in people's minds with something harsh and unpleasant. Uh, right. You know, it doesn't. The reflection doesn't necessarily always go that much farther than that. In the Frontland video, you mentioned that that while the tracks on the album are are not atonal, they they are occasionally polytonal. Yep. Um, would you be willing to to explain for those those listeners and myself who know very little about music theory what the difference is between atonal and polytonal well atonal simply means that there's no particular hierarchy amongst the notes in other words it's not the music is not written in a particular key uh, and mm-hmm. it usually means that um, all the 12 chromatic semitones are present so there's a, a kind of idea of chromatic saturation in other words you can use any one of the the white keys or the black keys uh, freely Whereas most of the time in tonal music, you're sticking to diatonic scales. In other words, seven seven note scales, major, minor, uh, whatever it might be, or a blues scale or some other kind of altered scale. Um, atonal music doesn't have that. It's not based upon a scale. It's not based upon a major or a minor mode. And you know all of the chromatic semitones are available to you. Uh, very, very little on this album could really properly be described as, as atonal. Polytonal, on the mm-hmm. other hand, is when you have uh, different layers, let's say, or different voices within a piece of music that are each in a distinct key and they're superimposed. So, uh, in other words, you might have one line that's played in C major and another that's played in E flat major, and they're happening simultaneously. So you have two simultaneous key centers in the piece at the same time, and that does sometimes happen in uh, Intramask Replica. There, there is a moment on this song where it sounds a little bit like the bass is popping into some, dis, some related but not the same key for maybe a couple of bars, and then that's right before it shifts into that the the riff that kind of drives the end of the song. Um, yeah. I would have to actually sit down, and and my ears are not good enough to actually pick out just by ear if it if it's really doing that or if I'm simply. Um, if it's just that there's a bit of dissonance in there that I'm mishearing as as two separate keys going on, uh, it, it is very fitting that this song is is extremely bass driven by the the standards of of the tracks on here. And I believe we talked a bit about the brilliance of of Mark Boston on on the previous episode, but he even gets a little shout out at the beginning of this of this track in. Uh, what has got to be one of the only avant-garde rock and roll songs that begins with a fart joke. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is just further proof of the the variety that you get on this record, that it is not, you know, this consistently harsh, daunting thing. You know, it's, it starts off with people joking about beans before the, the, the track even begins, which uh, feel, feels a bit like Zappa's influence, but they also seem to be clearly having a pretty good time and, and laughing on that on that recording. Yeah. It, it's worth pointing out that in an avant-garde context, that, I mean, that is exceptionally difficult to get away with, right? I mean, people, yeah. And people tend not to forgive you for, <laughs> for, for having a sense of humor. Yeah. 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 So, uh, but you know, hat, hats off to them. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm very fond of the sort of documentary slash collage aspect of the album. Uh, it's very well timed. It has to be said like those, those little snippets of conversation or just the sort of, uh, audio verite uh, moments on the album where it's just like you're you know there's a fly on the wall and you can just sort of hear them having fun or making jokes or whatever it is they never last too long right it's never it's mm-hmm. never tiresome it's never okay just get to the track already you know um and it's very very well edited i i'm i assume that it's zappa who did that but uh but whoever did it uh did a very good job i think and and also selecting the particular bits that ended up on the album, um, it, it has a very good rhythm to it, so it, it keeps it keeps it engaging, and uh, you know that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. It it could easily have fallen flat, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could have been. You know, it could have become irritating, or upon repetition, it, it could have been like, oh God, can I just skip this bit and get to the song? Um, but yeah, they they are well edited and well timed, so that it's it, it's. Um, it's not irritating to have to to listen to these little these little skits or these little uh, bits of of recorded dialogue or back and forth. Um, when I was doing uh, hair pie bake one with uh, Eric Good, as he mentioned the the bit at the end where where Van Vliet is having the discussion with the two kids 
um, that you can barely hear. You just have to really crank up the speakers to be able to hear this this conversation that he's having. And and Goodis remarked that I should try and find out the names of those kids and include them as players on the track because that that bit of the the music is is as memorable as as anything else. The bit of him having a, a chat with those that he's you know doing the bush recording and the two somewhat gobsmacked sounding kids. Uh, chatting with him about the music um yeah we actually and, and yeah it does all seem to fit as a, of a piece we actually do know who they are um I, I i can't remember their names off the top of my head but um yeah i think i think barnes i think barnes has their names um they were friends of of eric drew feldman's i think that's right that's right yeah and i think they were 12 or 13 years old or something they were just young kids um, and one of them actually passed away of Parkinson's apparently not, not long ago. I, I learned that from, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Learned that from Bill Harkle road. Um, but yeah, um, uh, you can, you can find that out. I, I, I can't remember if it's in John's book or where I heard that information, but you can, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, I'll seek that out and see if I can get their names in there because that is, that is a memorable, uh, uh I mean, all the little skits and, and bits of, of dialogue and so forth on here are memorable, but yep. that that discussion, uh, it, it it does give you, it, it sets you outside the music for a moment and gives you, you are in the shoes of those two kids who are kind of bewildered by, by what's happening and having this inscrutable conversation with this, you know, clearly unusual guy uh, who's out, you know, recording a bush as as he tells them as if it's the most natural thing in the world yeah absolutely yeah but you know you mentioned the word avant-garde i actually less and less i i don't really think of this as an avant-garde album and and part of the reason for that i mean obviously it pushes a lot of boundaries and it's experimental and it's it's incredibly inventive and all of that but there's still on a certain level an obligation for it to be entertaining right and that's something that mm-hmm. uh that is present on every single track like there's always something new coming at you to uh to make it engaging to make it fun it's it's got a sense of humor there's these little uh bits of uh, conversation that give it a really a really satisfying rhythm and you know it's it's not it's not it's not boring and that that isn't to say that avant-garde music is boring but simply to mm-hmm. point out that there's clearly a concern in terms of the you know the the rhythm of of uh, uh of, of the of the individual lengths of each track it's constantly changing and some of them are very short it like it has a kind of a, a quick pace to it it's it's very uh, it's very fun to listen to uh i mean bill is described in his book where uh, he hadn't heard the album in a long time and he pulled it out and he was just laughing and laughing his head off like he thought it was such a <laughs> it was just so much fun and so and uh so yeah i mean there's the, who like i assume zappa when he was editing it uh, was very concerned with with these sorts of things, with the questions of timing and you know making sure that that everything flows along at a at a good clip. So yeah, so there's it's not just simply a question of uh, prioritizing the search for some new aesthetic territory. Let's say there's also you know let's have a let's have fun. Like this is this is this is meant to be uh, you know maybe off putting but also in, but also engaging and entertaining and and amusing and all of those things. Sure. Uh, yeah. Van Vliet is kind of acting as like you're this sort of, uh, uh, it, there was definitely a showman aspect to his personality and a circus barker and a guy who wanted to, like, he's bringing you into his, into his wild world and showing you all these colorful sights. Like the people who, who talk about having seen the magic band live and, you know, rocket Morton coming out with a toaster on his head and uh, just, you know, these, these very, uh, these, these wild, um, cartoonish shows so yeah it's it's clearly not intended to simply be this you know pressing the boundaries of of what is music is capable of there there is an element there's an entertainer aspect to to van vliet and to zappa i would say um that that is a major a component out of curiosity is is there music that falls within the boundaries of rock music that you would categorize as avant-garde. Oh, that's a good question. Huh. And maybe, maybe I should, if I can phrase it another way, something I think about a lot is the degree to which for work that is, that I would define as experimental or avant-garde or challenging or any, any of those terms, which I realize are not synonyms, but uh, within that realm, how much intentionality matters for, for example, I really like the shags. Yep but they clearly didn't set out to make 
an experimental record. They were trying to make a pop record. The fact that it sounds like it does comes from their, I'm not going to say their lack of ability, but from their unique approach and their lack of, of connection of that approach to anything else. So they didn't set out to make an avant-garde record, but it sounds unlike any other pop record. Yeah, I, I would say that's true. But I, I view the Shags as being a kind of example of outsider art. I mean, I'm not hugely fond of okay. that term, but in the sense that the the aesthetic properties that it has that that are appreciated by people are are accidental properties. Let's say, I mean, they they weren't mm-hmm. they weren't uh, intending to to do that. Um, but yes, I mean, there are examples of of things that are classified as rock music, but that are really coming from an avant-garde perspective. Some of the the Velvet Underground stuff, for example, I, th- I think is is a good example of that. So if you take a track like uh, the Murder Mystery from the third Velvet Underground album, I oh, don't sure. know I don't know what else you could call that but avant-garde because it it relates to things like Andy Warhol simultaneously projecting two unrelated films, uh, and then having you know, various uh, dancers or uh, unrelated music going along with it. Like this idea of having these sort of spectacles in which you'd have various different layers going on simultaneously and they might not relate to each other. That, that's what's going on in that track. You have two complete sets of lyrics uh, and then you have this sort of minimalistic music going along with it that's very sort of primitive and uh, and uh, repetitious. Um, but nevertheless, they're, you know, it's a rock band and uh, they, they're not trained composers or anything like that. And, and they're, they're definitely coming from a, a very uh, do-it-yourself kind of uh, direct uh, approach to making a, making mm-hmm. a, a piece of music. Um, maybe a, another example would be a group like Sonic Youth, where, I mean, they were definitely in, engaged and involved with avant-garde music and interested in it and, uh, and sort of uh, weaving that into their practice. Um, now that's kind of interesting because they also were capable of producing, you know, relatively straightforward alternative rock music, but, sure. but the avant-garde side of things, which was not trivial. I mean, it was, it was a very sincere interest that they had was something that could be sort of woven into that as a kind of additional parameter. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, rock and, and the avant-garde, you would think would be sort of antinomic and, and two things that couldn't really meet, but it does happen. I mean, it happened, like, what else would you describe uh, Revolution 9 from the White Album? It, it's it's mm-hmm. definitely an avant-garde artifact, and there's there's no way around that. Uh, it's, in fact, uh, some people have said that it's the, it's the most widely distributed avant-garde artifact uh, in the history of the 20th century. You know, there's millions and millions of copies of it. Everybody's heard it. Most people hate it, but uh, but but there it is. I was just going to say the most widely distributed and the most frequently skipped. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But you know, you can take a track like uh, like Revolution Nine and compare it to something like Gesang der Jünglinge of Karlheinz Stockhausen, which was made in 1954, and mm-hmm. uh, that's a piece of uh, bona fide uh, avant-garde electronic music. Um, very different from electronic from very different from uh, from Revolution Nine. But nevertheless, that's what the Beatles were listening to, and they were influenced by those sorts of things, and it came out on this uh, on a rock album. So yes, uh, there are there are definitely a few things. I mean, most of what I'm describing are relatively isolated occurrences. Like these are not like the Beatles didn't make an entire album of Revolution Nine type pieces. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, it does it does happen. I, I gather that Lennon and Ono's albums that they produced in the 60s are are uh, sets of collages l- along those lines but i will be absolutely honest i have never listened to them yeah uh they're not very interesting um mm. they're not very interesting and they're not particularly rewarding to listen to i mean they're i i view them as as documents you know <laughs> documents mm-hmm. of, a, of, of their relationship of a certain process a certain way of working but they're not you know in, they're not particularly interesting. Um, and I also wouldn't call them rock music. I mean, there's, there's very little right. uh, on those things that, that would qualify as rock music at all. So yeah, I, I see that more as a kind of, and a documentation of, of uh, what was happening in, in their lives at the time that they made those recordings. Yeah. When, when I've discussed, um, the reputation of Trout Mask Replica, and, and one of the things I was I was attempting to get at with this this podcast was to to try and determine if it is still 
as challenging a record for people to get a hold of. I mean, it came out 50 plus years ago. A lot has happened in music since 1969. And I was curious to know, especially for for younger people who who I've talked to uh, about this record, if it is still this, if it still seems forbidding when they first clue into it. And the the general response that I seem to get is yes, but in different ways. The um, the uh, I mean, people know of its reputation now. They're not coming to it blind, and they have had you know the experience of punk and post punk and and uh, you know bands like Sonic Youth or or some of the more wild uh, excursions in in hip hop. And so the the discordance of the record is not perhaps as alarming as it, it was in 1969, but there still is this sort of alien landscape aspect to it that, that people find um, that, that's uh, strange and fascinating and, and bewildering. And I do think some of that has to do with it's a certain lack of self-seriousness that there is, there's a sense of humor to this record that, uh, you know, there's a fart joke, as you said, it's really hard to combine, you know, uh, experimental music with with humor and with this lightness of touch and this kind of day glow color of um cartoonishness of of some of the lyrics and some of the uh some of the imagery that it's, it's in some ways it's it's diversity and it's joyfulness are part are part of what make it a strange experience yeah absolutely but i, I think Again, my my answer as to whether uh, a younger generation is finding it off-putting or not. I mean, my my sense is that fundamentally, it's it's not about the scales they were using or the notes or the lyrics or any of those things. I I, re- I really think that there's a an, an issue of uh, there not being a lot of obvious patterns. I mean, there are. I mean, the album is. Mm-hmm. I have to qualify that because the album is full of patterns, but they're not obvious patterns. Let's say. Um, you have these polyrhythms, you have uh, simultaneous uh, asynchronous uh, you know, lines going on that repeat at different times and, and all of these sorts of things. So that, that seems to be something that's incredibly challenging for people. And it doesn't matter whether it's a piece of rock music or whether it's a piano piece by Arnold Schoenberg. Uh, it's the same sort of issue, which is that uh, when the patterns get a little bit less obvious and a little bit less explicit, then a lot of people find that challenging in music. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that's really the fundamental thing. It's a, it's a rhythmic issue more than it is uh, an issue of, you know, of the types of harmonies or any, any of that sort of thing. Um, so that's, that's where I think this album really is special is that it, it sort of rips apart these overly simple patterns that we've heard 10,000 times. And comes up with something really fresh. I mean, some of the examples you cited, like like punk music, like you, you can't get any simpler than that. In, like so, so <laughs> in, in, in terms of rhythm, right? There's there's nothing going on in, in a in a punk song. And most of them, you know, they tend to be very short. You know, Ramon songs are are like one minute long, and the and the rhythms are extremely simple. So um, I, I wouldn't think that there would be anything in punk that would be challenging per se. You know, you might not. You might not enjoy the uh, the sort of what would you call it the, the lack of sentimentality maybe and the there's a, you know a relative <laughs> harshness to it and all of that kind of thing, um, but nevertheless you, you wouldn't you wouldn't call it unlistenable or overly challenging or you know hard to hard to get your head around, and I think fundamentally it's a, it it boils down to how simple are the patterns. That that's interesting. I mean, we do we on some level as music listeners crave a certain degree of well, popular music listeners, I should say, uh, crave a degree of familiarity and, and repetition of patterns. Uh, I was listening to, Oh gosh, now I'm, I'm blanking on the name. Oh, I think it was the heat rocks podcast. Uh, and they had someone on who was uh, talking about a James blood Ulmer album and the, one of the hosts who was not, um, a, a particular fan of, of, from what I could tell anyway, of the brand of jazz that, that Ulmer played made a comment about they find that music difficult because there's a lack of hooks uh, in the traditional pop music sense to which the guest uh, explained that there's a million hooks on it. He just doesn't repeat any of them, right? That there's hooks going by, by, you know, there's hooks by the thousands, but you don't get an opportunity to 
spend time with that hook and get used to that melody because it's off to the next thing immediately, which is m- much the same with with Trout Mask. I mean, there are tracks that have some repeating patterns, but the the general structure of the album is that it, each song is this through composed piece that does not tend to repeat very much. And by the time you've settled down onto whatever they're playing at the moment, 30 seconds later, they're on to the next thing. And and as I think we we probably mentioned in the Pachuco Cadaver episode that I want to say it was it was Boston commented that any other band could have taken one riff on this album and stretched out a song out of it. Whereas with them, there's 20 seconds of it and then right. you're on to the next one. That's right. I mean, there are these moments of of sudden clarity where everything gels, everything sort of comes together, but it's always fleeting. So it, it's sort of like you're, you're in the middle of a cyclone and suddenly you're able to pull out something recognizable and then it's, you know, you've got it in your hand for two seconds and it's ripped out again. Um, and that, that's one of the things that happens on, on Fallen Ditch. You get that little, that little baseline, you know, it's, it's, it's super simple. It's, it's in the clearest possible C major, you know, it's, it's this, you know, it's this cheerful little baseline. Um, and it's repeated a few times and then it's gone. Uh, but then as I mentioned, it, it resurfaces on new electric ride, which is this track on Unconditionally Guaranteed that come out that came out five years afterwards. Baby loves to hide on the new electric ride. So it, it's funny, like, uh, I wonder if, if because it's sort of catchy and memorable, uh, that it sort of stayed with Don and, uh, and he you know, decided to reintegrate it into a, into a song a lot later on. It's actually really funny because uh, New Electric Ride is, you know, a, a relatively... A conventional track by by uh, by, mm-hmm. by these standards, and that little bass riff from Fallen Ditch resurfaces, but in a, in a swing rhythm as opposed to in straight eights, which is how it appears here. So that's that's funny for any listener who who does not know. Um, Van Vliet released a couple of albums at sort of the mid later midpoint of his career, called Unconditionally Guaranteed and Blue Jeans and Moonbeams. Uh, Unconditionally Guaranteed was performed with. The group that was his magic band at the time that was their last album with him they basically walked off after that and so blue jeans and moonbeams was recorded with uh with entirely from what i understand entirely different group um the fans of van vliet tend to not look very kindly on those albums they're they're thought of as being attempts at mainstream success or or a sellout um there are i think some I think there are some tracks on there that, particularly on Unconditionally Guaranteed, that while they certainly don't stand up with his best work, they are not bad as kind of offbeat um, 70s soul rock tunes. Um, Well, let's talk about that for a second, because I never quite understood why those two albums are always automatically lumped in together into the same category, Mm -hmm. because they're actually very different. Um, Blue Jeans and Moonbeams is a bona fide catastrophe. It's an awful album. I mean, there's nothing <laughs> redeeming about it. Uh, it's, it's not even interesting to listen to, you know, with respect to, you know, there's one or two interesting things in the, in the voice parts. Like the, the singing is phoned in. It's like, it's this anonymous studio band that's playing. There's, there's, there's no reason really to, to, to listen to that record. Uh, I, I will say, I will say one nice thing about Blue Jeans and Moonbeams. It has a nice album cover. Oh yeah, well that's true. That is true. Yeah, <laughs> <From> Curtis, Curtis, <laughs> if, if you, Mascara Snake. Yeah. <laughs> if you if you don't listen to it and you just look at the cover, it's perfectly pleasant. That's true. That is quite true. Whereas uh, Unconditionally Guaranteed is is totally different because it actually does feature the Magic Band, right? I mean, it's it's uh, it's 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 got uh, you know Bill Harkle Road plays on it, Mark Boston plays on it, Art Trip got uh, you've got mm-hmm. some very very fine players and bill does a lot of beautiful guitar work on it uh, listen to the uh the guitar line on um lazy music yeah mm-hmm. it, it's not you know it's not an outstanding song but uh, but bill came up with some beautiful lines on that and you know you can tell that he's trying to he's trying to inject something personal and interesting into the into the music So it's it's not uh, it's not a, a key album, but it's by it's it's actually quite a lot better than than people say it is. I know people like Mike Barnes hate it. You know they think it's just <laughs> just a total piece of garbage, and I, I I suspect that with the Magic Band members, their their memories of how unpleasant it was being in the band at that time have, sure. have colored their recollection of the record, right? Because 
Uh, they were completely fed up at that point. You know, no success. They were strapped for cash, uh, and being treated horribly by Don and and just doing all these dismal tours in third third rate venues and so on. And so, uh, it must be very hard to disassociate the actual record from you know, the, those really dispiriting experiences that they were going through at the time. Yeah, that that has to just leave leave a, a mark. I mean, I'm always astonished by the number of musicians that that after after the the somewhat traumatic sessions of making Trout Mask that so much I mean, Jeff Cotton took off pretty quickly, but the rest of the band would, you know, come and like Mark Boston and Bill Harkle Road stuck around until um, unconditionally guaranteed and and French was kind of in and out in in different incarnations it's it, the the amount of commitment that they had to making this music sometimes perhaps in spite of of van Vliet and his mercurial personality I mean they certainly deserve a lot of credit for for sticking with it and continuing to to produce this work and and as you said unconditionally guaranteed I think follows more from some of the some of the sweeter songs on on clear spot uh which is is one of his most probably his most um successful in terms of of bridging more um, a somewhat more commercial sound with what one might expect from from captain beefheart um yeah i mean this the, is this the, is a this is a, a clearly a heterodox opinion but I, I i wouldn't i wouldn't say that uh unconditional unconditionally guaranteed is notably worse than uh, than Spotlight Kid, for example, I think they've got some similar points actually to them. It's a little bit sweeter. It's a little bit more naive. You know, it's uh, the songs are simpler. Some of the lyrics are pretty bad. It has to be said. Sugar Bowl is pretty pretty ridiculous. Uh, it's it's like it, I, I was going to mention that when we when we were starting off discussing the the brilliance of of his poetry, um, it, it does the lyrics on on unconditionally guaranteed and especially on Blue Jeans and Moonbeams are are um, seem borderline disinterested yeah um, the word i would use is asinine um (laughs) that's a good description yeah but i mean but but there but there are some some good things nevertheless on on unconditionally guaranteed so i would say you know it's it's better than its reputation it's not an outstanding album but it's it's not it's not a disaster either um but we got onto that because we were talking about this this riff that you know mysteriously enough appears on on both of them and um, but uh, but that's that's one of the things I, I really like about about Trout Mask is is how you know it it's like watching some uh, you know totally chaotic landscape like as though a, a tornado had ripped through a town and caused all this devastation and then occasionally you know you, you come you come into something that that is uh, perfectly preserved <laughs> you know it's like it 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 keeps shifting in and out of organization it's like it's like a chaotic structure that that assembles itself into a, a co- coherent cohesive order right before your eyes and then undoes it again and that happens again and again on the album and so it's it's incredibly engaging to listen to because it, it it's it's constantly shifting uh in these totally unpredictable ways there, there's some word and i it's i'm gonna kick myself because i can't think of it uh, years ago i read um Derek bailey's book on on improvisation and he, he has a term for, and I don't believe it's a term he invented. I think it might come from flamenco music, where it's a term for when in improvisation, the band suddenly has these moments where it's almost like they're kind of telepathically communicating and everything comes together in these these crystallized moments. Um, and what's remarkable, one of the many things that's remarkable about Van Vliet's music is that in a composed track, it still has these moments of like that that kind of rush of everyone coming together in and forming this this perfectly like you said like this intact structure in the midst of devastation right yeah it's it's uh, it, that that repeated experience and as you say it doesn't just happen once it happens on almost every track you'll get these moments of of suddenly the band coalescing around a particular riff that and it's it's almost like they hit harder from coming from this place of seeming of feeling like chaos although uh, it is obviously a, a tightly strictly controlled chaos oh absolutely i think i think that comes through very clearly and i mean it's it's part of a very very small class of albums uh in which you you can tell that there's been 
thousands of hours of practice put into it, right? That, that, that's something that doesn't often happen uh, in, in rock or in pop, uh, where very often, you know, you, you'll have a short amount of time, like, let's say between tours or whatever, to, to write the material, and then you'll go into the studio and bang it out in a few weeks. Um, whereas this, you, you can tell, like, you can't just throw something like this together. Right? The only way to produce an album like this is to get uh, five you know, completely insane young men together and, and <laughs> force them to live in a small house for a year, working 16 hours a day. Like th there's no other recipe for coming up with something like this. And how many albums can you say that of, you know, where, where there's that level, that, that level of depth, that level of richness, where there's like this entire world basically that's collapsed into uh, into into you know a, a, a double album and that, yeah as you say it's a double album it, it's you know 28 songs of produced within this uh, incredibly complex and inefficient and and utterly singular way and it does it does create its own world some of that is is the the lingering the the lingering feel of of what it must have been like to be in that place in 1968 creating this music and some of it is just the alien landscape that's that's created from from this the the utterly utterly distinctive harmonies and and rhythms that are produced that are produced on this record yeah absolutely yeah yeah no it's 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 a it's a unique artifact on absolutely every level well i think that will probably do it for fallen ditch um Darren always rates the tracks. I always say every track for me is five out of five because there's absolutely no way to compare them to anything else. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Andreev, if you'd like to rate the track, you are, are welcome to do so. Uh, last time, I believe you you actually completely flipped the script and, and voted it 10 out of five, which I, I think <laughs> is an admirable way of just completely redefining things, just as Mr. Van Vliet probably would have. Um, so if you, and also if you'd just like to take this opportunity to signal boost anything you you'd like, or to, to plug anything, uh, the floor is yours. I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, I've got a podcast called the Samuel Andreev podcast. That's A N D R E Y E V. And I've got a YouTube channel also called Samuel Andreev. And, uh, I do interviews with musicians that, uh, that I find interesting and inspiring. And uh, I also talk about music that I, that I really like. So, and then I'm also a composer. You can find my music on Spotify and, uh, and various other places. And uh, as far as rating the track goes, uh, yeah, I'm going to have to go with 10. Yeah. Sorry to, to bust your rating system, but I mean, <laughs> I think that's entirely appropriate. You know, by the way, and, there's, uh, there's a podcast. This is funny. There's a podcast called make it stop. I don't know if you've heard this, <laughs> no, <laughs> but what they, what they do is it's uh it's, it's a couple of comedians, uh, and they sometimes have, have guests, um, who basically only look at at music that they think is so bad that uh, you know that that it, it just has to be dissected because it, it's sort of it, it's beyond belief how bad it is, um, and they rate albums on a scale of zero to negative five. <laughs> so <laughs> it's actually it's a hilarious podcast. I'm, I'm addicted to it at the moment. I will have to listen in. I will have to listen into that. It have out of curiosity, have they discussed anything where you've kind of felt like oh that wasn't that bad or or is it all pretty dire stuff? It's pretty dire stuff. They, the reason I found out about them was they did an episode on Full Circle, which is an album by The Doors. Uh, okay, and yeah, uh, yeah after, after Jim Morrison died, The Doors did two more albums as a trio. And uh, Full Circle is the second. And um, I've, I've always been fascinated by that record in a, in a weird, bizarre way that I, can, I can't really describe. Uh, partly because it's very interesting to see what happens when the, 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 the focus... Uh, the, the main focal point of a group suddenly disappears and then it's right. like everything that was holding it together is gone. And then, but then they still have the obligation to sort of keep going and, and making something new. And then what happens? And so you get this weirdly, uh, yeah, it's like, it's a total disaster of an album. Like it, it's, it's, it's not a good album, but it's, it's, it's very interesting to just observe, you know, this, this, uh, this weird phenomenon of a, of a group that really just doesn't have any center to it anymore. And it's just kind of flailing around. So they 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 <laughs> they took it apart in in meticulous detail, and uh, it's extremely funny. Oh, I can't wait to listen to that. I'm gonna, I'm going to subscribe to that right away. And and just um, for any listener who who has not listened to to Mr. Andreo's podcast or checked out his YouTube channel, uh, if you are a Beefheart fan, you absolutely need to do that. He has interviews with with Horkle Road, with John French, with Mark Boston, and as I believe you. 
it's the only interview with Jeff Cotton, the only one that he has done. That's right. Yep. And I, I got and that, to that is a fascinating listen. He's he's a very interesting man. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No. He's he's extremely interesting. Um, that was the first interview he had given in you know, literally fifty years, um, and uh, he had refused even to talk to John about the album. So I was uh, thrilled beyond belief to be able to get a chance to talk to Jeff. That really was is is remarkable, and and the things that he has to say about uh, about the record and about his relationship to music and and where he came from are are all. I mean, all all of the interviews with the Magic Band members are are fantastic. Uh, I I found his his particularly fascinating and moving because I had not ever you know none of us have really heard his perspective before. Uh, so that I mean, absolutely check that out um, if you want to follow track by track. Uh, we are on Twitter at underscore track by track. I'm on Twitter at Joel A. Bakker. That's B as in boy, A-K-K-E-R. I am also on Instagram under the same handle. Uh, Mr. Andreev, thank you again so much for being on the show. My pleasure. And thank you for listening. Ain't gonna get my balls.